Our text for today again is Luke chapter 3, verses 9 to 23. And we will read that. We will begin um, as soon as I open in prayer here. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you once again for the opportunity to plumb the riches of your word. Lord, we pray that we as your people would repent of being so used to your word that we take it for granted. Lord, there are so many places in this world today where there aren't even any Bibles in the language yet. And there's even more places where even though there's a Bible in the language, the Bible is outlawed. 53 countries, as a matter of fact, that we know of. And so we have a great gift. The Bible is a treasure. Help us to see it as such. Now as we open its pages, Lord, we pray that we would glean that truth which you would have for us to glean. I pray that you would use me to speak your words and your words alone. In Jesus' name. All right, well, as you know, if you've been here for any length of time, we've been, in my times here, uh, going through a verse-by-verse study of the book of Luke. And we are making slow but steady progress. And today, the title of my message, if you are taking notes, is John Preaches Truth and Jesus starts his ministry. And if you're taking notes, the first part we're going to talk about is John's call for holiness. We kind of touched on this a little bit last week because we were talking about John being a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And we're going to start in now with uh, John continuing his sermon as he's at the baptism that he's doing um, before, just before Jesus comes to be baptized himself. So we'll begin reading at Luke chapter 3, verse 9. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Every tree therefore which bringeth not good fruit is hewn down. And cast into the fire, and cast into the fire. And the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and saith unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. And he that hath meat, let him do likewise. Then came also publicans to be baptized, and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed you. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any one falsely, and be content with your wages. And as the people were in expectation, and all men mused in their hearts of John, whether... He was the Christ or not. So John 
is as the forerunner of Jesus Christ, he is preparing them for Jesus' coming. And a lot of times today we talk about Jesus' love, and so we don't really understand, and Jesus is love, okay? God is love. That's a verse in the Bible. We can take it to the bank. But what a lot of people don't realize is that Jesus calls us to holiness. He calls us to live a life that's separate from the, the outward appearances of holiness that are in the world. One that is true holiness born from a heart that has been changed. And John is basically saying God is now in the process of separating those who are righteous from those who are unrighteous. And he's saying if you do not bring forth good fruit, you will be cut down. Now this does not seem like a joyful message. Remember in Luke chapter 2, the shepherds were, they, um, were delivered a message that good tidings of great joy shall be to all people. And as we approach Christmas Day in a couple of weeks, we do so with the anticipation that we get to celebrate the coming of God to man. Emmanuel, God with us. But John isn't preaching this message of good tidings of great joy, or at least not this approach. Why? Because the message is tailored to the audience. And as these rulers, as these thick-headed people, are coming to him and saying, what must we do? He is seeing, by the discernment that God alone has given him, that they need to hear a harsher message. Even Jesus did this. For when he met with the woman caught in adultery, and he looked in her eyes, he knew that she already knew her guilt. He didn't have to tell her, you are a filthy sinner, because she knew. So what does he do instead? He says, who is it that condemns you? And she said, no one, Lord. And then he said, then neither do I condemn you. But you know, some people, I've heard people tell this story. And they leave out the next phrase, which is very crucial. What's the next phrase? Go and sin no more. You see, he wasn't telling this lady that her actions were appropriate. He wasn't excusing her adultery. He was telling her that because you are humble, because I can see your heart, because I have the power to forgive sins, I am not going to condemn you. Why? Because I love you and I'm going to die for you. And so that's the approach that Jesus took. And as we, as we come here, John gives some very practical advice. Because the people are asking, 
How can we bear this good fruit? And uh, he says, if you have two coats, give to the one who has none. And if you have meat, do likewise. You know, a lot of times, and, and I know I'm not speaking for everyone, I know there's some very generous people in this congregation, and I'm thankful for that. Personally, and also for some of the other work that I know that you do. But there's this implication sometimes that we as Christians don't need to be involved in our communities, in helping others in our communities. And granted, there are people and possibly even denominations of Christians who focus too far into the social, too far into showing God's love and never talk about the judgment, never talk about the need of Jesus Christ as a Savior, and that too is wrong. But John is saying, your actions need to show a changed heart. And it's interesting that another John, in 1 John, said, if you see your brother cold and, and hungry and say to him, be warm and be filled, but do nothing to help him with those things, you are a hypocrite. And I strongly feel that what we have in today's society in the United States of America is we have churches that have dropped the ball and said, we don't need to do those things anymore. And guess what happened? The government came in and said, we'll take care of you. But when the government says that, there's a hefty price tag that nobody realizes until it's too late. I think the best thing that could happen as a result of what's going on in healthcare in this country is for churches to wake up and start taking care of the people that sit in their churches every Sunday. We need to be a family again in a very real way. It's not called the family of God just as a euphemism. God intends it to be that way. Then he says, Then also the publicans came to be baptized and said, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed to you. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? So he's going through all these things. I mean, he says even to these soldiers, You have a responsibility, but don't do violence to anyone. Accuse no one falsely. And be content with your wages. And so then people, because of the, the message which he is preaching, they are speculating that he would possibly be the Christ. And before we move on to this next point, I wonder if somebody could read Luke 2, 37 and 38. Luke 2, 37 and 38, kind of backtracking a little bit, but I think this will cast a little bit more light on the idea of holiness. If somebody could read that. 
And she was a widow of about fourscore and four years, which departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And she coming in that instant gave thanks likewise unto the Lord, and spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. So again, we go back and we see this example of Jesus, of Anna, who was waiting in expectation for the Savior and served God always in the temple. What is it that Jesus said? He said, the meek shall inherit the earth. And he said, those that hunger and thirst after righteousness will be filled. And because Anna hungered and thirsted after righteousness, she was in the temple when Jesus came there, and she was, it was revealed to her that he was the redemption plan of God Almighty. You want God to reveal himself to you? Then make yourself available to him. I have to tell myself this as much as you. But oftentimes when we're sitting there and twiddling our thumbs and wondering what in the world God is doing, it's because in at least some part we have not made ourselves available to Him. Or He has told us to do something, we have not finished that work. So how can He give us more to do? I was just uh, telling someone the other day that um, sometimes someone's past work will influence whether I ask them to do work for me again. And I'm sure the same is true for me to others. I just wanted to share this quote from John Brown, who was a 19th century Scottish theologian, about holiness. He said, Holiness does not consist in mystic speculations, enthusiastic fervors, or uncommanded austerities. It consists in thinking as God thinks and willing as God wills. We can often get confused as to what holiness means. Holiness does not mean choosing not to marry or choosing to marry or choosing not to eat meat or choosing to eat meat. Holiness isn't those external things. Holiness is saying, what is God doing? What does God want me to do? And what things are in guideline with the scripture? You know, I also am very concerned at times that sometimes you say, well, God wills for me to do this. But if it falls out of God's guidelines in Scripture, it cannot be God's will. God's will will always follow God's guidelines. And if that makes me narrow-minded, so be it, because Jesus said, narrow is the way that leads to life. Well, we go on under 
point two, John is going to clarify his role and suffer for his stand. And here is what we see. John answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor, and he will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. And many other things in his exhortation preached he unto the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, being reproved by him for Herodias, his brother Philip's sake, and for all the evils which Herod had done, added yet above all this, this above all, that he shut John in prison. So John said, I'm baptizing you with water. I'm doing what God called me to do. But there's one coming that will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And what was it that Jesus promised? He said, I must go that the Comforter may come to you. He didn't leave us alone. He left us with the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, who will guide us into all truth. That's how we're able to hear and understand the Word of God. That's how I'm able to preach the Word of God, by none other than the power of the Holy Spirit. I could be the most efficient orator ever, but if I'm not speaking by the power of the Holy Spirit of God, then all I'm doing is vain repetition. but with the Holy Spirit. We can rightly divide the word of truth. And we can stand up for it no matter what the costs. I think of the difference between the Apostle Peter, pre-Holy Spirit, and post-Holy Spirit. Pre-Holy Spirit, Peter is asked, Weren't you with Jesus of Nazareth? And three times he says, No, I wasn't. And the third time he says he was so vehement about it that he cursed. And then he realized what he'd done when Jesus looked into his eyes. And he walked away and he wept bitterly, tears of repentance. For we find out after Jesus rose again, he met with Peter one-on-one and restored him. And then post-Holy Spirit, we see Peter, who many people thought was the same man, but this was not the same man. This was a man changed by the Holy Spirit of God, and he got up after healing the lame man in Acts chapter 3, and he said, Men and brothers, if you must know how this man was made whole, be it known unto you that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, this man stands before you whole. And guess what they did to him? They put him in prison. And they beat him. And they told him not to preach in Jesus' name. And if this was the old Peter, 
it wouldn't have even got that far, but even if it did, he probably would have said, okay, let me hunker down and never do that again. But he doesn't do that. As a matter of fact, he speaks up to them. And he says, whether we do right or wrong, judge for yourselves, but we cannot help but to speak those things which we have seen and which we have heard. You see, the power of the Holy Spirit makes all the difference in the world. That's why people in the prison system have a 70% recidivism rate, which means they go back over and over again. And the government, I was always talking about how we need bigger jails. But what we need is a revival from God Almighty. What we need is for people to stop thinking that they are basically good and realize that they are evil, but in that realization realize that God can change hearts. God is not in the business of making old people new as much as he is in making dead people alive. He takes out your old heart and he puts in a new heart. But John does not tell us all this without a cost. Herod took his brother's wife he killed his brother so that he could marry his wife. And John says to him, That's not acceptable. It's wrong. And one thing I take from this is, he could have very easily left him alone. He knew that Herod wasn't a believer. He could have just gone with his own band of followers and minded his own business and consequently kept his head, literally. But he didn't. He saw immorality and he spoke out against it. And my question for you and for me is, are we willing to do the same? Are we willing to be called a hater for standing up for the principles of God? For Jesus said that we would be hated because he was as well. How can we expect better treatment than the perfect Son of God? Quite frankly, we can't. Can we look at um, John 329 to 36 just to get a little bit more on this particular point of looking at uh, John the Baptist John 329 to 36 somebody gets that if they could just read that for us he that has to drive is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, 
rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This is my joy. Therefore, this my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase, I must decrease. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earth, speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. What he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth. No man receiveth his testimony. He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. The Father loveth the Son, given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Alright, so we see that John the Baptist had a proper view of himself. In our modern times, we would say in some ways that as Jesus is the bridegroom, John is the best man. If you've ever been in a wedding... You know that it's about the bride and the groom. Now, some people will say it's only about the bride. I uh, disagree because in the picture that we're supposed to be representing, Jesus, the bridegroom, is the primary focus. But any way that you want to look at it, it's about the bride and the groom, the couple getting married. So the best man is that day anyway is just another guy that happens to be standing beside them. And uh, you may or may not know him, but he's not the focus. And this is what John is saying. I am not the focus. I'm here to deliver a message, to prepare the way. And my message is that the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, is the most important. And he says to them, when his disciples say, well, his disciples are baptizing more than us and people are leaving to follow him he says he must increase and I must decrease and you kind of see this again in the book of Acts because you see kind of that in the first part of the book of Acts Peter is the main preacher, the main person proclaiming the gospel that we see. But in the second part of Acts, you almost never hear from Peter again. Why? Because Paul is now the central figure of Acts. But you know, more importantly than Peter or Paul or John the Baptist is Jesus Christ. And no matter who is being talked about in the New Testament and the Old Testament as well, but especially the New Testament, 
no matter who is being talked about. The primary focus is not on these men, but is on Jesus Christ. Paul said, some say I am of Paul, some say I am of Paulus. And he says, you have the wrong idea because you all are supposed to be of Christ. Sometimes we don't realize how much of an impact we can have. I want to share a story about somebody that you may or may not know from history, which transcended with someone who is a great historical figure. And I'm just going to read this because I think it's very good. It says, The great American hero, editor, school teacher, and Presbyterian clergyman Elijah Lovejoy left the pulpit and returned to the press in order to be sure his words reached more people. The Civil War might have been averted and a peaceful emancipation of slaves achieved had there been more like him. After observing one lynching, Lovejoy was committed forever to fighting uncompromisingly the awful sin of slavery. Mob action was brought against him time after time. Neither this nor many threats and attempts on his life deterred him. Repeated destruction of his presses did not stop him. If by compromises meant that I should cease from my duty, I cannot make it. I fear God more than I fear men. Crush me if you will, but I will die at my post. And he did, four days later, at the hands of another mob. No one of the ruffians was prosecuted or indicted or punished in any way for this murder. Some of Lovejoy's defenders were prosecuted. One of the mob assassins was later elected a mayor. However, note this, one young man who one young man who was around was around, who was deeply moved by the Lovejoy martyrdom. He had just been elected to the Illinois State Legislature. His name was Abraham Lincoln. And as bad of a scourge as human slavery was in these United States, and it was, it was an awful time in our nation's history. The very fact that people thought it was okay for one man to own another. Apart from the guidelines for indentured servitude outlined in the Old Testament. Was a very awful reality. But because this man, Elijah Lovejoy, was willing to stand up for what he believed God was calling him to do, a young man named Abraham Lincoln began to rethink this idea of slavery. And it's because in part of his stand that slavery was abolished in our great country. The beginnings of which were the Emancipation Proclamation 
and then it ended with the ratification of an amendment to the Constitution. All that to say that as powerful as it is, that slavery was eradicated from our country, human slavery, how much more powerful it is it is that slavery to sin was eradicated by the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ signed our Emancipation Proclamation with His blood. And He says to us today, If the Son, therefore, shall set you free, you will be free indeed. My brothers and sisters, are you free today? Do you have freedom in Christ? I hope so. Now I just have one final short point and then we will wrap up. The third point here is God blesses His Son. Now when all the people were baptized, this is starting in Luke 3.21, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And praying... The heaven was opened, and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven, which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. And Jesus himself began to be about thirty years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, which was the son of Helen. It's kind of sad, actually, because even with all this happening, there were still people that said, Is this not Joseph, the carpenter's son? Or is this not Jesus, the carpenter's son? Joseph being the carpenter? They failed to realize, many of them, that he was anything more than a carpenter's son. But he was so much more. He is so much. But it's kind of interesting that even Jesus had to wait to begin his ministry for an appointed time. Remember, uh, in uh, Luke chapter 2, we read that he went to the temple at 12 and he stayed there with the teachers. And when his parents asked him where he was or why he stayed, he said, Why were you seeking for me? You should have known I was in the temple because I was about my father's business. But even at that, the very perfect Son of God went back with His parents and was subject to them. I know I've mentioned this before, but it just strikes me so much every time. If the Son of God can be subject to His earthly parents, how much more should I be subject to my parents and to my Heavenly Father? Now granted, my relationship with my parents is not the same at 34 as it was when I was 14. But I still have an obligation to honor them and respect them if I desire a long life upon this earth. And I desire as long a life as God will give me to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. 
I just want to follow up this final point about God blessing His Son. Let's look at Second Peter verses verse or chapter one verses sixteen to eighteen real quick. This is Peter reflecting on being with Jesus. Second Peter one verses sixteen to eighteen. And then I have one final story and we will close this time together. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, and we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory, when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard, when we were with him in the Holy Mount. Remember, Peter here is referring to the Mount of Transfiguration. And when Peter was there, he, he saw Moses and Elijah and Jesus. And he said, let me build three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And it says that after a few moments, Moses and Elijah were gone again in Jesus. They saw Jesus only. And then God said to him, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. And so Peter was rebuked that day for having the wrong focus. But God was patient with Peter. You know, if it was me, I probably would have thrown him out of my twelve. You know, pretty soon into that three-year period because Peter could be a pain in the neck. But guess what? So can I. And I'm thankful for the enduring mercies of the Lord Jesus Christ because he hangs on to me even when I can't hold my head up. I want to address very quickly um, this idea of Jesus as an example versus as a Savior. Because there's a lot of people today that will take Jesus as an example. They say He was a good man. We should follow most of His teachings on social justice. But the moral things, we can just do whatever we want with them. D.M. Stearns was preaching in Philadelphia. At the close of the service, a stranger came up to him and said, I do not like the way you spoke about the cross. I think that instead of emphasizing the death of Christ, it would be far better to preach Jesus the teacher and example. Stearns replied, If I presented Christ in that way, would you be willing to follow him? I certainly would, said the stranger without hesitation. All right then, said the preacher, let's take the first step. He did no sin. Can you make such a claim for yourself? The man looked confused and somewhat surprised. Why no, he said. I acknowledge that I do sin. Stern's replied, then your greatest need is a Savior, not an example. You see, if we separate the example of Christ from the deity of Christ, we have nothing. 
Because if Jesus was a good teacher, as he said himself that he was, then he was a liar, for he said no man is good, but God alone. And he said, before Abraham was, I am. And if he was a liar, then he wasn't a good teacher. So following his teachings for his teachings' sake means nothing. And if you're going to follow his example, he wants perfection. Perfection is not humanly possible. So the only way to follow his example is to look to the cross and to see your sins on his shoulders buried in the grave never to be remembered anymore. Do you ever think about the fact that the God who never forgets us chooses to forget our sin? The God who never forget God, a single covenant that he made with mankind, chooses to forget all the times we forget our covenants with him. I'm humbled by that. And I hope you are too. I pray that God's grace would rest upon you this week. I pray that you would go forth in the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would do your part in turning the world upside down for Jesus Christ. If you know him, go in peace. If you don't know him, repent, choose Jesus as your Savior. Give him your sin, and in exchange, he will give you peace and joy unspeakable. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for once again being with us as we went through yet another portion of this wonderful uh, letter from Luke to Theophilus. And we thank you that he had the Holy Spirit move upon him to write this account. We pray that we would be uh, encouraged by this time that we would be convicted where conviction needs to occur and that we would go forth from this building proclaiming Jesus not only as an example but primarily as the Savior of the world through whom we all live and move and have our being. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.